3: Uh, in the northwest, about twice the size of Texas, that was that's dominated by by Turkic uh, Muslim Uyghurs. One of the greatest living Uyghur poets, a guy named Tahir Hamut, uh was called with his wife into a police station in Urumqi, the city where they lived. Uh, they were told that they had they needed to have their fingerprints taken, uh, which to both of them seemed strange since they'd had their fingerprints taken multiple times before. Uh, but in China, they, they didn't really have any choice. So they on the appointed day, they went to the police station, and they were directed down into the basement. And when they were there, uh, they got in line with with a bunch of other Uyghurs. And they found out that all of the all of the people in line, uh, the one thing they had in common was that they had all they all had passports, they would all traveled abroad. Um, and they couldn't quite figure out what was going on, but as they got closer to the door of the, of the office where they were supposed to, where they'd been called for their fingerprinting, they realized it was much more than that. Um, They, they were sort of sent through a a gauntlet of, of biometric collections. So they had, of course their fingerprints taken, but then Tahir was told to sit down, uh, pick up a newspaper and, and choose an article and to read it out loud where his voice was recorded. Um, after that, he was his blood was taken, and then at the very end, uh, he had he was sat down in front of a very strange-looking camera on a tripod with a with a sort of device attached to it with three different lenses, and he was told to slowly rotate his head uh, up and down, left and right, and he had to do it at exactly the right pace um, and in exactly the right way. It took him several tries to do it. Uh, and what, was event- what he eventually figured out they were doing was making a three-dimensional portrait of his head. Um, he didn't quite understand it at the time, uh, but this was the beginnings of a, the rollout of a massive, massive uh, surveillance operation in Xinjiang that was, that was intended to track and categorize Uyghurs according to how likely they were to resist party rule. Uh, and over the next few months as it, as it became clear exactly what was happening as, as Uyghurs around him started to disappear as, as his neighborhood, uh, cleared out, uh, Tahir started to make plans to try to escape.
2: Hello, and welcome to the new books network. I'm Peter Lawrenson from the university of San Francisco. My guests today are Josh Chin and Lisa Lin. Josh and Lisa are both reporters for the wall street journal who have conducted pathbreaking reporting on China's surveillance state. They've now synthesized and extended that reporting into a book just released this week. The book is called Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. Josh, Lisa, welcome.
3: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: So, why don't you first tell us a little bit about your own backgrounds?
3: Sure. Well, uh, I'm a. a... Born in the U.S., I've been a reporter, reporting mostly on China for most of my career, probably about fifteen years altogether. Uh, the vast majority of that has been with the Wall Street Journal, uh, starting around two thousand eight. Um, and uh, my time in China ended unfortunately in, in early twenty twenty when I was expelled, uh, along with a couple colleagues. Uh, at the beginning of uh, what would a, what would end up being a fairly destructive media war between the China and the U.S. Uh, between China and the U.S. Um, and since then, I've been kind of bouncing back and forth between Seoul and Taipei, but still uh, helping direct China coverage for the journal as the deputy bureau chief.
1: Hi, I'm, I'm Lisa. Uh, I'm actually Singaporean and I started out my career in Singapore working for Bloomberg News covering Southeast Asia. And four years into that, I realized that China was that place that was beckoning every journalist in Asia to go to. It was just too big a story to resist. So I grabbed like the first job that I could take in Shanghai, and I ended up working there for eight years. Uh, And now I'm a colleague of Josh's at the Wall Street Journal. I left China on my own volition at the end of 2018, but I've still been covering China from outside of it for the last couple of years since then.
2: Um, Lisa, are you able to to visit China, like to do reporting trips still? Or do you have to, is that challenging?
1: So for the book, I actually did a couple of reporting trips in 2019. Um, just to finish up uh, understanding and talking to people, and my last trip was the, to China itself was the end of 2019. And another trip to Hong Kong early 2020. But very quickly after that, China closed its borders for covid and since then, it's been very difficult for anyone to get in, um, much less a journalist.
2: Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, I just was, you know, uh, rushing through your last chapter. And uh, um, before we spoke and, and saw the very last chapter was Exile. And and I thought it was about you guys, actually, but uh, which, it kind, of, you know, it kind of is right for a lot of uh, a lot of people specializing in China, whether academic or, um, or journalistic, um, unfortunately, but um, from both the politics of it and and the, the practicalities of how of the COVID response, but um, anyway, we'll get we'll get more to that. So, so um, tell us more about the uh, the re- research and reporting that went into the book.
3: Right. So the the book uh, began uh, in a very sort of Wall Street Journal kind of way, um, basically by following the money. Um, Lisa at the time was uh, covering venture capital. And startups in China, and uh, one day in fairly early in 2017, she had called me up and said she'd found this company, the, the startup, in Ch- and was, had offices in Beijing that was raising a lot of money, and and uh, would I be interested in going? And the reason she called me is she knew that I was I was interested in i had been interested in surveillance and and the ways that the Communist Party. Was reinserting itself into the lives of of regular Chinese citizens. You know, this was like clearly by t- by twenty seventeen, it was clear that that's sort of what was happening, right? It was this kind of reversal from from previous decades when the party had been removing itself from people's lives. So, anyway, she knew I was interested in that topic, and uh, and the company. So and this this company's it was raising money based on a, on technology that was selling for surveillance and in particular uh, facial recognition. Technology, sort of AI-driven, um, really cutting-edge stuff, and so the, together we went up to a uh, their offices in Beijing, and and it was just like you know, it was like stepping into a science fiction movie. Um, I mean, these days facial recognition doesn't seem so new, but in 2017 it was just mind blowing to see all of it, and uh, and, um, and you know, the, at the time the, the companies, the company was called SenseTime. It's now China's, uh, I think, largest. Um, at least you know one of it's, it's always been one of the, one of China's largest uh, startups at least for the last few years but um you know they were fairly open because they were still raising money and they wanted to talk to us and, and get their name out there and they you know they told us how they were selling these systems all around the country to police to police departments and and uh, you know using it to co- to to catch criminals and so it was just just seemed mind blowing to us at the time, and we so we went back. And we did a story uh, for the journal, and it got a lot of attention, and that kind of led to another story, and then another story, uh, and that and that all culminated in us going to to Xinjiang in, in uh, late late twenty seventeen, uh, where we you know kind of um, found that, you know figured out this you know we're one of the first um, groups of journalists to to start uncovering what was happening there.
1: And I guess to add to that, um, right when we decided we were going to write this book, we made sure that we wanted to show state surveillance in a very even-handed and balanced way. So yes, we had already written a ton of stuff uh, for the Wall Street Journal about how Chinese police were using it and possibly even abusing it in places like Xinjiang or in ethnic minority areas. So for us, you know, a lot of the extra research and reporting came on understanding you know what were the ideas driving China's surveillance state you know who who were the parties that helped it get to the to where it was today and also just showing to the reader that there is a different side of Chinese surveillance that most people in the West did not realize. and we only found this out when we were reporting on the ground speaking to people and we found that many Chinese found the same systems that we had been writing about for The Wall Street Journal very, very attractive.
2: Yeah, so, so I, and I really appreciate that in, in reading the book because, you know, certainly the, the criticism, you know, you've heard many times, you know, to varying degrees of truth is that, yeah, journalists want to go in and, you know, you guys want a headline, you want a good story. So, like, you know, the worst things that happen in China make the best stories. And that's true of, you know, reporting in the U.S., right? The most dramatic, awful thing that happens to anyone is the thing on, on the front pages, even if 99.9% of us are experiencing very different lives from, from that person. Um, and uh, but it can mislead us into thinking they're representative. Um, not to say that a lot of these things are not very widespread in China. But but why don't we start with? Um, well, we we I had Josh, I had to kick off with a uh, you know a little taste of, of more or less the worst end of things, um, the, the surveillance um, and and uh, oppression that's uh, taking place um, among Uyghurs in in Xinjiang. Um, but yeah, why don't we you know since the title of your book is surveillance state. So it's, so it's clear that, you know, there's a problem here and and something that we would, you know, surveillance is not a positive word um, for, for most of us. Um, So, so tell us more about like, what's the logic of this? Like why, you know, why would, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, again, authoritarian government, of course they want surveillance. They want to keep track of everyone, you know, 1984 and all that. Um, But why, why would ordinary citizens be behind it? And what's sort of the, the, the favorable logic of of why there's there's good elements of why you know countries not just China you know should be taking advantage of these technologies or might hope to take advantage of them, right?
3: Um, well, I think I think in some ways you can trace this back into at least in terms of why the Communist Party is doing this, like what their motivation is. Um, you know, I think it comes down to a real fundamental change in the political landscape in China, right, in, in, in the last few years. And that has everything to do with economic growth, right? So for two or three decades, um, the, the Communist Party had this kind of tacit social contract, right, with, with, with Chinese people, which is we will deliver double-digit economic growth and we will sort of dangle this prospect in front of you that you may someday strike it rich, whether or not you actually will, um, you know, will also generally increase, um, you know, the quality of life. And and in return, you just agree to not make too much trouble. Right. And that and that was an arrangement that really held quite well for for a long time. But that's, you know, starting sort of in the late 2000s and early early 2010s, right around when Xi Jinping uh, came to power, it became clear that 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 was not really sustainable anymore. That the that the Chinese economy was, you know, saddled with tons of debt. There were structural issues that were that were going to um, undermine future growth, demographic uh, challenges, and basically that the, the Communist Party would no longer have economic growth to fall back on as a source of of legitimacy, right? And and so the Communist Party needed to figure out what it was going to do next, and. Part of that answer, a big part of that answer, uh, is, comes in the form of surveillance, right? And 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 it's so it's not just uh, surveillance for the purposes of of oppression, of political oppression, right? Although that is a big part of it. Um, but it's you know, there's the flip side of it is offering Chinese people something new. If they can't be rich, they're not as likely to be rich in the future. What do you give them? And and the way that the Communist Party is using. Data collection uh, and and these cutting edge cutting edge AI technologies is to sort of make people's lives more convenient and safer. Uh, you can know, kind of sand away the frictions, right? Um, and so, you know, we one city that that we went to and at least speak a little bit more about is is Hangzhou, um, which is you know a wealthy city full of middle-class people who the communist party wants to keep on side. Um, and they've, you know, the tech companies there based there have been working with the government to, to use surveillance, to, to really make life there a lot, a lot more, uh, pleasant than it used to be.
1: So the reason why we chose Hangzhou in our book to profile was because Hangzhou is home to two of the world's largest surveillance TV companies. Um, so Hikvision and Dahua make, the most number and make and sell the most number of CCTVs globally, uh, and a big part of their business, of course, goes to China. And we di- we made several trips up to Hangzhou uh, just to kind of talk to people and understand what sort of surveillance was there. And the more you the more you spoke to people in Hangzhou, the more you saw the liu, because the same type of systems that were used in Xinjiang, the same data collection s- systems that Tahir had experienced were being used in Hangzhou to for example keep law and order uh, I, re- I remember going to a startup a surveillance startups office in Hangzhou and you know they were selling what at what to me at that point felt a bit uh, almost lame. It was a set of VR glasses that they claimed had facial recognition and they claimed that several police departments and several train stations in China were using these like clunky um, clunky, clunky glasses that kind of look like you know the Google Glass but much chunkier. Uh, and they claimed that you know it, it stored like 10,000, more than 10,000 face. Faces in, in the glasses, and it could spot anyone within 300 meters whose face um, data was stored in the glasses. And the startup was just so enthusiastic about what it was doing because it thought it was helping society. You know, it thought that for them, it was keeping, you know, criminal offenders, possible drug smugglers, um, mentally ill people off the streets. Because that's exactly what Chinese police tend to look out for when they look for people of interest. So it was just more and more of these similar stories popping up as I did my research in Hangzhou. And in Hangzhou, like they use sensors and CCTV cameras not just to keep law and order, but they're also using these same like sensors to, for example, optimize traffic. Uh, The city in 2016 began this experiment uh, using an AI-enabled system that crunched data from from CCTV cameras installed at road networks and also GPS data um, from cars on the road to try and make traffic flow more smoothly. Uh, Within two years, Hangzhou dropped from the fifth most congested city in China to the 57th. Because through crunching that data, they were able to keep traffic lights green when traffic was heavy, you know, and, and basically optimize the time uh, it took between the lights, depending on how much traffic there was on the road. And it wasn't just traffic. Uh, the systems could spot like fires in a, in one part of the city and send the alert to the first responders to get there quickly or spot traffic accidents on the street and traffic police would come, uh, in a fraction of the time it used to take before, because before you would have to go through the process of someone spotting the accident, reporting the crime, and then traffic police kind of heading down to clear congestion around that area. So there were a lot of these other benefits that when you spoke to people um, in Hangzhou, they, they enjoyed and they liked.
2: So do you feel like in general, people in China, I mean, I've certainly heard this assertion, right? People in China To start as worried about privacy right america we've got this whatever frontier ideology like i should be able to like vanish over the horizon and leave you know my woes and past crimes and maybe wife and children behind or something i don't know and no one can find me and i can start a new life you know whereas and and so i think we still have uh you know at least subconsciously this this idea that like you know this is super important i should be able to like be free of, of everything um and 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 then the water, you know, the, the less intense version of that is just, you know, we have a very strong idea that privacy is like a fundamental right. Um, but people say, you know, in China, it's just different. You know, they've always, you know, there's always been like hyper intense community surveillance. You know, you had, a, you had, you know, when everyone lived in a village, you know, everyone lived in a village, right? In a village, everyone knows your business, right? And then as cities grew under the, under the Communist Party, they had, you know, the, the grannies sitting on the corner reporting back to the party on like, everything, you know, even, you know, women's biological cycles, right, across most more, like all sorts of things. So people are just kind of used to like, yeah, the government's going to be up in my business. And, you know, there's maybe maybe there's an element of just accepting it as inevitable, but also, you know, for some parts of it, not all just that this is, uh, this is, this is nice, you know, I mean, certainly, I would feel safer sending like, a 10 year old walk, you know, 10 blocks to buy something through any part of town in China than I would in most cities in the US. So like, isn't it all good?
3: Right. Well, you know, the privacy question in China is really fascinating. Uh, As we were actually, it was sort of changing as over the course of this book, as we were writing it, Um, you know, sort of in the last few years, you have seen um, in, in sort of you know, first-tier Chinese cities um, you know, tend to be a little bit wealthier and more well-educated. You have seen a real the beginnings of a, of a privacy movement uh that have blown up and and um sometimes you know gone viral. Uh, I remember there was a episode where uh, Robin Lee, the CEO of Baidu, you know, China's Google, had was speaking at a, a tech conference and people were talking about AI and, and privacy, and he just, you know, he kind of flat out said what everyone I think believed was true at the time, which is that You know, Chinese consumers are willing to trade their privacy for, for convenience. Uh, but it went out and it just blew up and blew up on social media. He had to retract it. He had to apologize, which I think took a lot of people by surprise. Um, but what's interesting is that, um, you know, most of that focus, most of the focus of that, of the sort of privacy outrage in China is on kept on companies like, like Baidu, right. Or like Alibaba or Tencent, these big, um, these big tech giants in China. And they don't really, it doesn't really touch on the government at all. And I think sort of what that, you know, it's, it's one of these things about privacy, which is such a malleable concept, right. So like if you ask someone to define what privacy is, they can't, most people can't, right. Because, or at least not, they can't give you a, a really comprehensive definition um, because it's just such a, 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 a difficult, concept to, to sort of pin down. And I think the Communist Party recognizes that. And, you know, we should say like the vast majority of people in China still don't really have a, a, a strong concept of privacy, right? I mean, aside from, you know, outside the cities, you know, in, in other lower tier cities or rural areas, I don't, it is, it, it's kind of a luxury that a lot of people haven't thought about. Um, the word privacy in Chinese, like, didn't appear in the, uh, in the official like Xinhua dictionary until the 1990s, you know, so it's still a a relatively new concept. And And the Communist Party, I think, grasps that and they've sort of defined it. They've defined privacy as something that applies to or privacy rights as something that applies to companies, but not not to the government.
1: I think what was interesting to me about like the way privacy awareness evolved as well was how the state managed to control the narrative because in our reporting what we noticed was state media tended to amplify company kind of abuses of data whereas when it came to data leaks by the state for example which we know that China is very worried about you didn't seem to see as much reporting on that or definitely like such incidents would have been played down uh, I'll give you an example so for example recently there was a large data breach Uh, of a Shanghai police department of which like a billion people's like personal IDs, cell phone, you know, criminals, they were suspected, uh, sorry, crimes they were suspected of committing. Everything was um, being sold on the dark web for very, very little money. And this was a big thing outside of China, but within China at all, there was absolutely no reporting. Um, There was very, very little reporting about it. So it, it was interesting to me how the state managed to uh, kind of mold the definition of privacy to have privacy become something that, you know, companies, uh, would, uh, companies would abuse, but not the state.
2: Right, I guess it's sort of loosely analogous to sort of how they've also changed the definition of democracy, sort of democracy is, giving the people what they should want and will decide what they should want. And as long as, as long as that's true, it's all good. Right. So if you, if you change your definition so that there's, it's almost like tautologically, there's no way that the party can be wrong. So, um, you know, start from that premise and move forward and then we'll, we'll make our definitions based on that. Um, so yeah. Um, although it's it's interesting to hear like the, yeah, the shifting view of privacy, it seems like it's now with the sort of Chinese upper middle class maybe it's probably still a little bit more like in the U S where I think, um, you know, the, the studies that have been done, like everyone, if you ask them if privacy important, they say yes. And if there's like a policy thing to maybe vote on as a group, it's kind of interesting. Cause usually you think of like good things. We want to have the group we want to do together, but maybe, you know, selfishly like, you know, I want to litter, but I want to have some, you know, or I want to like drive my car, but I want to have carbon reduction. So like, but with privacy, it seems a little bit different where, um, everyone, collectively says yes we should protect our privacy but actually when they are given the chance chance individually to show that they value privacy like you know i go to safeway every day and then and they always are like well we'll give you a 10 percent discount on everything as long as we can keep track of everything you've ever bought with us and it's like you know kind of creepy but like <laughs> um, but then it's like but i get you know they, i'd have to pay so much more for my groceries every week if i didn't give them all my data so you know that's a that's the deal I go for. So I, I, I say I like my privacy, but I give it up all the time, you know, and and I don't use whatever DuckDuckGo or other, like, you know, browsers that are, like, super protected. Um, and, yeah, and people have done lab studies and found the same thing. So anyway, it seems like maybe maybe we're, uh, yeah, the upper middle class in, in China and then people in the U.S. are kind of converging on that thing where, yeah, we like privacy in name, but then we also love all the conveniences. Um, anyway, but, but that's been all that, oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, one thing to add, Peter, is that I think in China, one reason why people feel kind of resigned to having the data taken is because for the longest time, there was no, uh, I guess, legal protection against having your data taken. Like last year, China put in place a data privacy law, which enshrined kind of the right for you to not have your face data scanned uh, when you enter a store, for example, or, you know, in 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 a a real estate place where they could identify you and perhaps pitch you um, pitch you property when you walk in to a show, show flat. So for the longest time, people didn't have the right to push back, and that could be also one reason why you know privacy awareness in China might be higher in the in the urban cities, but people kind of seem resigned to just having the data taken.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Right, something.
2: Yeah, like like we were saying before. Like it's kind of always been like that. So the idea that you should actually, yeah, if you never had that right or never even had the the, the whisper of that right, it's it's hard. You know, it takes a while to become aware that you might even have to be able to agitate for it. Um. So, yeah. So uh, so that was uh, you know we were talking about kind of the the I'd say the you know central Han Chinese part of China, where there's kind of some, uh, well, we didn't talk about how it goes awry, maybe we can get back to that. It, can, it goes over, you know, I think it goes awry or can be abused in that context. And like you said, the law, um, actually I should have you clarify. So the law that you mentioned that does that follow that, that, uh, principle you said, where basically it applies to companies and it protects people from companies, but it hasn't places no restriction on the government.
1: So I wouldn't say there's absolutely no restriction on the government because uh, government agencies and civil servants can sometimes be like a big source of uh, data leaks as well. You've seen in the past in China, you know, just 10 years ago, you could easily buy like a cache of people's ID numbers and cell phone numbers from a rogue employee that works for a telco, for example, or a rogue employee that worked for a bank. Right, and that's why you have all these spam calls, people calling you asking if you want to take out a bank loan. The reason why they know your name and don't know your number is because they bought data. Um, so a lot of these da- data brokers can be civil servants. So the the law, what the law actually did was quite smart. The law did put in place um, punishments for civil servants that d- leaked privacy, uh that leaked data. But it made exception for like state security and national security agencies whom we know, you know, they defined um, people of interest in a very vague w- way, you know one of one of the ways they could define national people who are dangerous to national security could be like a petitioner, for example, or like a human rights activist. so when di- when these agencies start collecting data, they're kind of, in a way exempted from the privacy law. There's no pushback if these agencies were collecting data.
2: Right. Okay. So yeah, so I guess it's a that that fits with another part of the China story that sort of China's government is a huge apparatus. And so and there's an element where like they put laws or put procedures in place to control their own people because they're you know there's there's so much going on. You know, they don't want any restrictions on the top level or the, you know, the security services or the the core of the of the state, but uh, but yeah, then the sort of peripheral things, like you said, like telco employees, they do want to keep them from, from just ripping off data and selling it and things like that. That makes sense. Um, so let's shift back to Xinjiang. So I had you start with that, cause that's definitely, you know, the most dystopian um, aspect of that. And I don't want to uh, underplay it um, by, by talking about like, you know, the, the rest of China, but um, yeah. So, so tell us more about um, uh, what has, has been happening there in recent years.
3: Right, so so Xinjiang, I think um, it it represents the the sort of state surveillance in its kind of rawest, um, most straightforward form. It's most sort of um, brutal form, actually. I mean, the the way that you know, so essentially, what is happening in Xinjiang, um, uh, as you as you know, Peter, and I'm sure many of our listeners do, but um, you know the Chinese Communist Party has been very concerned with uh, the situation in Xinjiang because partly because Xinjiang is a very resource rich and strategically important area uh, and it is in it its home to a large number of, of Turkic Muslim minorities who really culturally, linguistically, ideologically have almost nothing to do or have very little to do with, with Han Chinese. And it, you know, if you go to Xinjiang, um, you know, you go to a Uyghur city, it feels you feel much more like you're in Istanbul uh, than 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 in a place like Beijing, right? And the people there have, have, you know, people there have long chafed at, at, at the presence of Han Chinese people at the Communist Party rule, and uh, on a, on a very few occasions have have launched violent attacks. Um, and so the Communist Party is you know, at a certain point, probably around 2016, 2015, 2016, um, decided that it's sort of usual measures and there were not it's usual measures to to control the situation there were not working sufficiently. And so they decided to to crank it up into an entirely new campaign, which was which is basically aimed not just at persuading Uyghurs to accept party rule, but to sort of re-engineer. Uyghurs right to sort of make them more like Han Chinese and the way they did this is by building a uh, a, a, an archipelago of of internment camps um, across the region and then using surveillance technology this a massive web of of cameras and microphones and and smartphone scanners um, and uh, and sort of data analysis uh, programs to Track and categorize Uyghurs, right? Um, and and those Uyghurs who were sort of determined by the the system to be um, potentially uh, to have the potential to sort of resist the party, um, they, they were shipped off to to these internment camps where they underwent political uh, indoctrination. They were taught Mandarin, uh, often tortured if they weren't if they didn't if they didn't uh, obey. Later, uh, a lot of them were sent to to do forced labor in, in factories, um, and you know. That, and so essentially, that's what you know. This effort is is to is to kind of remake Uyghurs, um, you know, by 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 making them more Chinese,
2: right? So that that part, although actually, I think like most of what you've said is obviously it's intensified in recent years, but it's also you know, process of like rounding people up and trying to indoctrinate them in the you know culture and religion and ideology of the majority is, uh, you know, something that's they, that, that pretty low tech. It's been done in other countries, maybe not mostly to the same extent. Right. But, um, and, and mostly repudiated by those countries later when they realized how horrible it was, but, um, uh, but something has been done and you know, it's not tech enabled. So what's the tech enabled aspect of this? How does this play into the surveillance state?
3: Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, what, what China is doing in Xinjiang is by no means, um, Unique to China, like like you said, it's it, this is a project that that many countries have, have undertaken in, in in different time periods. I think what China is able to do is, you know, the tech enables them to do it on a much grander or a much grander, a much larger scale, and to do it much more efficiently. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the comparison is always fraught, but if you look at Nazi Germany um, when they when they were trying to round up Jews, it was actually a really, it was a difficult thing for them. They didn't have the systems in place, uh, to, to, they didn't have the census data, uh, they didn't know how to find, uh, Jews. And it was, it was a big thing that actually the IBM ended up helping them with, um, with with their own technology, but but it was a you know it, you know in China it was just a much easier thing because they they you know they have the ability to collect just vast amounts of data and to store it on a centralized platform, right? So that you know every cop uh, you know every cop in Xinjiang has a, a, a smartphone app that he can use to input data that he collects on Uyghurs, right? Um, and you know and records of of where every Uyghur goes based on you know. Based on scans of their ID cards at security checkpoints, or based on facial recognition hits, or uh, they also have the ability to recognize people by their gait, the way they walk. You know, all of that data feeds into a central platform, right? Which just makes it so much easier for for authorities to keep track of people who they think might be dangerous. Um, and and the other the other piece of this is obviously that they, um, you know, they have a formula. Uh, whether it's a correct formula or not, they have one that sort of purports to predict future terror terrorist behavior, future extremist behavior, right? That that, that purports to be able to, based on biographical details, tell whether someone is is a threat to to society. Um, so I think China would argue, the Communist Party would argue that it's more precise than previous efforts, uh, to the extent that they're willing to to associate this with with previous similar efforts. Um, you know, I mean, the Communist Party does actually promote this as a as an innovation in counter terror uh, counterterrorism, right? But that's that's so that's basically what they they're able to do. They just they're able to collect much much more information. They're able to process it more quickly and centrally, uh, and then and then at least uh, ostensibly project into the future who will be a threat, right? And
2: I guess an the advantage they have there sort of is that they don't actually care about they're not so worried about false positives. Like in the U S you know, if we, I mean, there was, I forget a few years ago, like, you know, with the the original, you know, after nine 11, they were talking about like collecting people's library records. And then, you know, you know, in a sense, like finding statistically accurate truths, like maybe if you checked out, you know, a copy of a book that was about, you know, Islamic extremism and another copy of a book about like chemistry, then like maybe you're, go from one in a million chance or one in a hundred million chance that you were thinking about, you know, that you were gonna be an extremist of a certain flavor to like two in a million chance, which still is like, you're probably not, but of course, like in the US, people tend to be still a bit statistically illiterate about that kind of stuff. Like recognizing, like, okay, going from one in a million to two in a million is meaningful, but it doesn't mean you should arrest a million people, you know. So um that but if but in China they're well they did they arrested a million people more or less, right? Based on things, you know, not uh, not a lot more substantial than
3: that yeah that, you know that it's, it's interesting there's a um a, a scholar uh, an expert on Xinjiang who does really amazing work named, named Darren Beiler who um who talks about China creating potential terrorists right I mean it's sort of inventing it's, it's turning these people into potential terrorists when they actually never would had any intention of, of doing anything remotely close to 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 uh to carrying out terror and you know one of the interesting things technologically about all of this, right, is that the way that AI, the way that predictive algorithms work, right, and they have this with, uh, you know, you have this in the U.S. Some police police departments have, have experimented with predictive policing algorithms, right? The way that they work is by extrapolating from historical data, right? And so, like, the, the, theoretically, the more data you can pump into these systems, the more accurate they will be. And, you know, with terrorism, the problem is that in any given population, even in a place like... Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan, right? Where you where you have a much larger, you know, proportion of terrorists in the population. Even in those places like that, the number of people who actually are engaged in that kind of activity is still a tiny fraction. It's it's probably less than one percent, right? So you just have very little data on what actual terrorists do, right? So you so instead you have to use this adjacent data, right? Like, like you said, like reading a book or, uh, Googling how to make explosives, but even, even less than that, right? It's, it's like, how many times do you go to a gas station? Right. Um, do you have a Quran? How many times do you pray? And like, none of these things have a direct causal relationship with with terrorism, right? They're just normal things you would do, um, but but that's all that the the Communist Party really has to hand. And and there's also a question of whether they actually really, um, you know, how much they actually really focus on terrorism versus just um, obedience or disobedience, I guess.
2: Right. Yeah, it does seem like this convenient cover, because certainly there is maybe some lip service towards like some kind of cultural acceptance, or you know, there are ethnic autonomous regions, right? Is supposedly what they're called, but then, you know, I think it's, it's very clear that the, the party views, you know, there's one there's one way towards modern, modernity and that's, you know, speaking the language of the majority and participating in, you know, the market socialist system, the way that it's been designed and things like religion or, you know, cultural affinities that are anything other than like, you know, a, a nice dance and a funny costume um, is not really, not really, you know, something they welcome. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's, yeah, one of the sad things also is just how, how they seem so unaware of, of the idea that, like, you know, pushing hard on people can make them, can radicalize them and, you know, make things worse. Um, I mean, I remember I, I uh, the one chance I had to go to Xinjiang, um, I went with a friend who had spent um, a lot of time in uh, in the Middle East um, just prior to that, and who uh, was uh, focused on you know, studying, like, uh, the... Wahhabi islam and other things and he and he was amazed like we went into a a mosque and like what you know participated in prayers there and he's like they're singing that's like you know that would they would get you know they would get executed by the extremists because like this is the way they're doing their religious practice is so so different and so totally unacceptable and you know there's so many things like but you know obviously if they're not allowed to participate at all. Then yeah, it makes it much more uh, appealing to say, well, how do we, you know, who's fighting back against this kind of anti-Islamic repression, and then uh, ally themselves with with the the people who uh, are are pushing back. Um, okay, so that but that's Xinjiang, right? So um, so obviously they, you know, have, uh, you know, their their political and cultural connections, as you said, to to the rest of China have always been thinner and, you know, up until, you know, uh, especially before the last 50 years, you know, the, not that many Han Chinese people there, now there's more people, but it's still kind of, a um, you know, very different from the Han heartland. So like, is it, uh, I don't know, is, is, are, are, how much do the things mattering that happening there matter for people in the rest of China and how we sort of assess the country as a whole?
1: I think because of state media censorship and internet censorship in general, most people in China have no idea what's happening in Xinjiang. Um, if you look at uh, all the news articles that have come out on Xinjiang itself, within the Chinese social media or the Chinese internet space, you really see the campaign portrayed as, this is a great campaign for Xinjiang. You know What we're doing is we're teaching them skills, we're teaching them how to speak Mandarin, so it, they get integrated into the broader Chinese economy or we're providing them jobs, you know, without a mention that maybe these jobs could involve forced labor or, you know, no, I guess, no real choice on the part of the Uyghur, um, Uyghur person. So if you if you think about what's happening in Xinjiang, there's been so much reporting overseas, but because of the internet firewall in China and the ability of the Chinese Communist Party to control the narrative, most people in China have no idea um, of the atrocities happening in Xinjiang.
3: Right. And I was, I I the one thing I would add to that is, I mean, I think Chinese or people outside of Xinjiang in China are, they are experiencing, they do have a connection with what's going on there in the sense that a lot of the surveillance and, and sort of social, social control techniques that you see in Xinjiang are now starting to spread elsewhere, particularly uh, during the pandemic, um, and I think it's uh, this seems to be like the new crisis response. This is this is the pattern of crisis response for for that the Communist Party has adopted. Um, and, and you know, I remember uh, just you know, of course, I was kicked out of China, but not before the beginning of the pandemic had already started to take hold. And I just remember how surprising it was to see techniques that I'd witnessed in Xinjiang being imposed in Beijing, right? It was just like, it just seemed unbelievable to me. And one of, one of the obvious ones was that they would um, close down all of the residential compounds in, in Beijing. You know, in China, they have these humongous residential compounds with multiple buildings and uh, multiple entrances, and they would close off all but one entrance, right? To make sure that they could see who was coming and going. And they, they would give you a pass to go out, you know, and they would check your passes. You came and went, and it was just—it was exactly like Xinjiang. That's what they—that's what they did to all of the the residential compounds where Uyghurs lived. Um, you know, and of course now you also have in, uh, apps that track everyone's health status or their risk exposure and their travel records uh, in in Xinjiang or sorry in, in in China in general. And that was also obviously something that was happening to Uyghurs before. Uh, so. So it's certainly, even if Chinese people are not exactly aware of, of what was happening in Xinjiang, they are personally experiencing uh, techniques that were pioneered there. Yeah,
2: so actually you saluted that. So, so um, I know you both uh, had to leave with COVID, obviously, and haven't been able to go back in person, but you did uh, report a bit on like how things, how that's changed things or, or pushed some of these developments along. So how, um, yeah, what has, what has happened with that, with the whole COVID and our situation?
1: So we started reporting the book maybe about three years ago. And the reason why I guess it took a little longer than we expected was because the pandemic hit and the pandemic ushered in this whole new era of Chinese surveillance that we were both stunned about. Um, in the past, you know, you not everyone in China would be watched 24-7, right? China has 1.4 billion people and it would be almost, it's really kind of almost impossible even with like high, um, high-end high technology to be watching everyone, you know, wherever they go um, every day. But with the pandemic, uh, I mean, what was really interesting was um, now everybody was starting to be tracked 24-7. Uh, in the past, it would be people of interest. Um, and now everyone's phone had like a digital tracker that they called the health code that Josh uh, alluded to earlier. So essentially in China, wherever you travel now, you have to show your health code. And the health code is... Um, a green, yellow, or red QR code is something like a barcode that you have to flash to show if you know you were exposed to a COVID um, outbreak anywhere in China. So red would mean that you were recently in the last two weeks traveling within a place that had a COVID outbreak. Green would mean you you have a clean bill of health and you're allowed to go wherever you are. If you have a red code, you, you cannot step out of your house. You essentially can't go anywhere. So these codes, the way these codes are, um, I guess, the way they assess your health risk is that the state telecom companies share data of where you've been over the last 14 days with uh, the agency that actually runs this health code. So as long as you've stepped in the city for more than four hours, it's going to be logged in your health code. And if that city has an outbreak, your health code turns red immediately. So now everybody in China, everyone with a smartphone at least, was being, the movements were being logged 24 7. You never saw this um, prior to the pandemic. You know, in a way, like prior to the pandemic, unless you were one of the seven groups that the Chinese police kind of finds offensive, like possible terrorists, you know, a petitioner who's unhappy, uh, someone they saw as like um, destabilizing to society. You know unless you fell into one of like seven categories that the police looks at, you, know, you you generally would be left alone and not surveilled. But now with the pandemic a lot, a lot of that has changed.
2: And are they using it to to uh, how are they using it to take it to sort of enhance social control outside of uh, you know straightforward like disease control?
3: Well, you know, that's—I mean—it's a really interesting. It's—it's—it's hard now, I think, in China to divorce disease control from social control because uh, COVID zero has become, you know, the Communist Party's most important uh, policy by far. I think it even trumps the economy, right? Um, But you have seen, you know, the the thing with surveillance technology, right? Is that it's, um, you know, surveillance you know, a piece of a system you might put in place for one purpose inevitably ends up getting used for other purposes. Right. So, you know, if you talk about public health, surveillance is, is the one, you know, public, public health is the one area where surveillance is actually a good word. You know, disease surveillance has always been considered a good thing by public health experts because otherwise so how? Not, gonna... the
2: disease, not surveillance of the people. Right. So, right. Like, exactly. Exactly. Then that, the, that, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah, exactly. But, um, but so, you know, like it's it's sort of hard to argue in some ways with a system that is tracking a potentially deadly virus, right? Um, it's hard to say that's a bad thing. But what, what happens is, you know, when you've, once you've got those systems in place, the people who are in power uh, are going to be very tempted to use those systems for other purposes. And you actually saw a really good example of this. Uh, not too long ago in Zhengzhou, uh, in central China, the capital of Hunan province, where there was a, uh, a, a massive bank fraud amongst these sort of local rural banks. And as part of the investigation, local authorities froze a lot of deposits. And so bank customers were really angry about this. They, they staged one really large protest that kind of caught authorities in Zhengzhou off guard. And so the second time they, they were organizing this protest, the security authorities in Zhengzhou got wind of it and basically turned the health codes of everyone, of all those protesters, all these bank customers red, which gave them an excuse to, so that any one of those customers who came in, uh, to Zhengzhou for the protest, you know, they were, they had, a, they had an excuse to send them to a, a quarantine hotel. Right. And basically quashed the protest. And, um, you know, this did, this did sort of get out and actually, interestingly, um, did cause a bit of a, an uproar. And then the security officials were fired eventually. Um, so it is an interesting moment for China, right, where, you know, you can see the potential for them to use these technologies for greater social control. But you also, as we were saying earlier, there's a bit of a consciousness now in China of, of, of how these technologies can be abused. And so um, it will be, I think, really interesting to see how the party handles this going forward.
2: Great. Well, I know you guys have a huge uh, lineup of, uh, of launch activities for your book, um, so uh, I won't take too much longer. I guess maybe want to flag uh, a couple of um, uh, just for people who are listening, you know, you, you some things we didn't get to talk about that are in your book. Um, and if I miss some, you can mention others. But uh, you, you also talked about the, the development of the social credit system, which actually is a little bit like an, an earlier version and similar concerns with this code system where, you know, there's like the real bad thing. Like you have bad credit and then like, could political things be kind of thrown in there to like nail someone who actually didn't have a, you know, a bad debt problem, but actually just, you know, had the wrong political attitudes. Um, and so you look, you look into that. Um, you also have an, a nice chapter looking into, uh, the spread of, of these technologies around the world. Um, and, uh, how, and I think your conclusion on that—you can correct me if I'm if I'm misreading—is that it's more of an amoral spread. It's not like they actually care whether other people or other countries are more or less oppressive. But anyone who wants to buy it there and be, you know make them more friendly with China—that's that's good for the companies and it's good for China. So that's enough. Um, and then uh, and then you also looked at—we um, didn't get a chance to talk about you know the connections with the U.S. But you did also uh, look at the the role that U.S. P- companies have played in the development of the system, um, which, uh, you know, is absolutely essential for us to, you know, it's not just something happening remotely in a far off land with Chinese companies doing things to Chinese people, it's something that we're involved in and need to think about, um, you know, what's what's the right way for our businesses to operate? Um, And uh, and you looked at, you know, you you looked at the U.S., so you also look at policing in the U.S., which, uh, you know, faces many of the same issues um, that are in China. Uh, of you know, surveillance is super attractive to police, and it achieves some things that are public goals, like you know, safety. Um, but but has huge potential for abuse or misuse or naive use or whatever. Um, any others you want to? There's there's maybe a few, a few more. You guys really, uh, you know, it's uh, it's amazing. You guys got this book, especially because you're trying to be timely, and yet you're also like covering about twenty different uh, zones. I imagine you've been uh, you've been writing like crazy for a while now. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, I think uh, I mean I think that I think you kind of you hit all the hit all the major notes. Um, yeah, it was a uh, it was definitely an interesting process writing this book because it was sort of a fast moving target. Um, I mean, I think I hope we sort of identified some of the the sort of key dynamics, which I think do run through run through state surveillance no matter uh no matter what happens with it i think they're, you know this and especially this idea of sort of carrots and sticks uh, that 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 it is really alluring you know and and um you know more so than i think people really realize um you know uh so and and it, and it is here right i think it's that's the main message for us right is that state surveillance, so I think the time to push back against it, if it, if it ever existed, is, is, is past. Uh, and so now I think what democracies need to do, or what, you know, our conclusion is that, you know, this is a this is kind of a moment of truth for for democratic societies to sort of figure out what their answer is to this, because, I, you know, China's message to authoritarian countries is very clear. Uh, and so now it's sort of time for for democracies to to come up with their answer.
1: We basically just wanted to inform. I mean, that's the basis of us writing the book. You know, there are a lot of misperceptions about China out there and misperceptions also about Chinese people. And, you know, having Josh having been in China for 15 years, myself for eight, we recognize these misperceptions that have been going around. And we just wanted to write a book in a very factual way uh, just to show that China is... You know, might not always be the way you think it is, or it might not always be what you see in the press. And it turned out to be a great timing because no one has been able to easily get into China over the last two years. And over the last two years, because China's been so closed up, there have been even more misperceptions floating around outside. So, with our book, we really wanted to just inform and correct all these.
2: Yeah, that's great, and, and I think you did a really, really good job of doing that of really getting, you know, all, all the facets of, um, you know, again, China, more than a billion people. So there's there's always a lot more going on than um, than any one one report or picture can can view. It uh, you uh, you I guess uh, give a very broad, comprehensive picture of the surveillance state. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so highly recommend the book to um, anyone listening. Definitely get your copy. Um, I think it's really, you know, there's there's no filler chapters. It's really worth reading beginning to end. Um, and uh, look forward to um, hearing more uh, more great reporting from you guys in the future.
3: Great, thanks, Peter. really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Peter.